questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. If you're new, I gather these questions from the community tab over on my podcast channel and we just chitty chat about them. I answer them and we do it each and every week. Hence why it's called Ask Katie Anything. So um, without further ado, let's just jump into that first question. But first a little bit of coffee because why not? Question number one says, hi, Katie, what advice do you have for those of us who cannot tolerate intimacy? Hmm. Too much eye contact, love, and attention often seems to overwhelm me. I find it so much easier to connect with people that I barely know. When people get too familiar and close, I panic and want to run away. How do I learn to tolerate being close and stop registering connection as a threat? Please help. Well, this was a great question, and it's way more common than I think we realize. And there are a lot of reasons this could happen. I think that's why it's common. The reason, number one, trauma in our past, meaning maybe we were abused as a kid, bullied in school, you know, any kind of trauma had something terrifying happen. But when it comes to the intimacy being a difficulty, I find that it's usually either physical or sexual abuse in some form, assault, anything like that can make intimacy feel very dangerous. You could see why that would be triggering, right? So trauma is one thing. Another is having attachment issues in childhood, which can be trauma related, but it also can just happen on its own where maybe a parent doesn't show up for us in the way that we expected. Um, And this would be a form of abuse. It could be like emotional neglect or something like that, or it could just be, you know, the way that we interact with our family and just things were just a little bit different, right? Like everybody else seemed to connect fine. And I don't know why I just never felt connected. It could be there could be a ton of reasons. And so attachment usually is connected with trauma, but not always. And I just want to put that out there for anybody who, so you don't feel like you, you know, if you don't have a trauma, then it can't be me. Um, And then finally, those of us with borderline personality disorder or BPD can fear abandonment so intensely that the idea of letting someone get close to us is like, oh, terrible and we don't want it to happen. And so those are kind of the top reasons. If you think I left any out, feel free to leave those in the comments. Um, But I think that those are the top reasons why we would struggle with intimacy. And the best ways to fight back against this or to combat the urge to push people away in what I call puffer fishing. I should have worn my puffer fish sweatshirt today. Um, But oh, I think actually I have my puffer fish t-shirt on underneath here. But anyway, um, the best way to combat that is actually to do work in therapy, whether that means that we work to process our trauma, either through talk therapy, EMDR, somatic experiencing, uh, schema therapy, parts work. There's tons of trauma treatments out there. If one doesn't work for you, don't think that you can never get better. We just have to try a different one. So trauma treatment could be really helpful when it comes to BPD. If we find ourselves struggling with impulse, like impulsive thoughts and actions, um, feeling like we maybe don't know who we are. We can think really negatively of ourselves. If we really fear abandonment, remember that really intense fear of abandonment, that's like key. Uh, Maybe we struggle with self-injury. Those are all, I mean, that's just part. I have videos all about borderline that you can watch and hopefully can help you better understand. 
But the best treatment for that is what's known as DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And the reason this is so beneficial is it not only forces us to be a little bit more mindful about what's going on inside of us, right? Because if we feel overwhelmed or we're scared people are going to leave us, we can often just disconnect, meaning my feelings and thoughts and whatever's I need to disconnect those from my body or my body, bodily sensations, body memories, tension, any of that just feels it's too much together. So we disconnect and DBT helps bring us back together so that we're at least aware. Because even if we have that kind of disconnection, and if you're just listening, I'm doing air quotes like this, it's because it's a fake kind of disconnection. We're still connected. Um, but when we do that kind of numb out really, or disconnection, then we just explode later. We act impulsively. We can harm ourselves. We can um, harm our relationships, do what's called splitting in BPD, where it's like people are either all good or all bad. And if someone does something that like slightly upsets us, we're like, oh, fuck it. We don't like them at all. And so all of that behavior kind of stems from us disconnecting and not tapping in. And so DBT helps us tap in. It also has a lot of tools for ways to manage our emotions called emotion regulation skills. Um, Everything from, you know, taking care of our basic needs so we're not so vulnerable to our emotions. And then also, you know, other I call them like thought exercises. We have a lot of them in CBT as well, cognitive behavioral therapy, which DBT is kind of just a build on that. But anyways, um, it helps us like think things through, like what's the best case scenario, worst case scenario, you know, some other tools and things that we can do. Like I'm going to back burner this. I'm going to deal with this later. Um, there are some different things that we can do to help. And so those, I find trauma treatment, DBT, and then if you find your intimacy coming from another space, maybe it doesn't have anything to do with trauma or or BPD or a family member, like our parent not being there for us, like that emotional neglect component that I mentioned. If we don't find it coming from there, I think basic talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy could be really beneficial because then we can figure out like what what's the root of this behavioral issue. But in my experience, like 90 something percent has got to be from one of those three things I just mentioned. Um, and I guess I'd throw in a fourth, but the the thing, the fact that it overwhelms you and that it, it's not just one person makes me not necessarily think this is the the key. But if you've had a relationship, a romantic relationship where you were either physically or emotionally harmed, again, that'd be a trauma. So I'm still having a hard time thinking, but I just want to put this out there in case somebody's like, it doesn't apply to me. Let's say you had a really loving relationship and then you found out that your partner was like cheating on you or lying to you, had like a whole nother life or something, which would still be cheating, I guess. But if you found out that happened, then intimacy can make you feel really vulnerable. It can make you feel like uh, bad things are going to happen, right? It puts us, it's like a threatening situation because we had that situation where it was threatening and it wasn't good. And so anyway, there can that's just one other thing. Now, there were comments on this and it said also, why might we be intolerant of intimacy from certain people, certain family members that I'm close with, for example, I struggle to hug. Why do I have this with some members of my family and not others? I think it depends on what that family member means for you and says, it makes me so uncomfortable to hug someone that I love, um, but I love to share that with others. There's no clear difference, gender, age, etc. It would be, so for instance, let's say we were abused by a male in our family, then it could be that in our brain without 
And we, we don't maybe even, we're not even conscious of this, but any male in our family then becomes a threat. So we don't want to hug them. We don't want to get close to them, anything like that. Or let's say we were abused by our grandmother. So any woman in our family or any older woman in our family, right? Our brain is always going to seek out threat and look for it and try to identify it and then try to keep us away from it. And so if we had a bad situation in our life, that reminds us of certain people. You said it has nothing to do with like age or gender. And I know that that's like what I just mentioned, but I'm just saying that it could be the just the way that they are, or they remind you of someone that was harmful, remind you of something that was harmful. Or if we take it a step further, and I'm just hypothesizing with you, because like everything in therapy, each and every person is going to be a little bit different, right? But when it comes to family, it can be complicated because, you know, they could have been related to someone or they could um, I don't know if anything, like I had a patient, this is years and years and years ago to this point, it was one of my early, early patients. Um, she saw me through court mandated therapy at the center for individual and family counseling in North Hollywood. Anyway, she had, um, just had, had a difficult time with a lot of members of her family because of the fact that when she was younger, she tried to press charges. She was like, I don't know, eight or 10 because her father sexually abused her and she wanted to press charges. And she went through this whole process and a lot of members of her family didn't support her and thought that she was like trying to tear their family apart. Um, and so for that reason, even people who weren't involved in that specifically, but like the brother of that person or the mom, or she had a real difficult time seeing them, talking to them, any of that. And I know that that's like a very specific example, but I just want you to know that this can come out of a lot of different places. Um, and so digging into considering what those people represent for you, and it could just be the overall thought of family. Family might be triggering. I know a lot of people talk about family, like, oh, it's supposed to be this wonderful and amazing thing. But I think, you know, many of us out there would argue that that's not always the case. And family can actually be a much more toxic and harmful environment than other people. Um, one thing I realized I forgot to mention is in the first part of this question, um, they said, I find it much easier to connect with people that I barely know that tells me that it's a history thing, that there's something with people getting to know you that puts you at risk, or you feel like it puts you at risk. Um, and people that you barely know, I would I, I would be curious, I guess here's my question, because I don't have the answer in this question. I'd be curious that then if those people that you barely know, if you get to know them, then are they off limits? Or is it that we, it has to be like new people? Do you know what I mean? I, I My hypothesis would be that once you get to know people and people get close, then you're like, oh no. And my borderline patients do that all the time. They're like, I love like these new relationships. And and this seems so, um, I don't even know what the word is. It's just like those kind of surface level conversations. They just really enjoy that. It's so nice to get to know someone new. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And we can feel very excited about that. But as soon as someone gets to know us too well, so we go through that phase and we move into the next phase, then they're like, this is, they can't be trusted, right? And I'm always like, what shifted? So anyway, those are just some of the things to think about too. Um, and the person about the certain family members, we'd have to be curious about that. Be a detective for your symptoms. So why are those the people that we don't want to be around, that we find intimacy to be really dangerous, is it because they know us really and the fact that they know us so deeply makes them a risk to abandon us or to harm us? Maybe that's it. Do they remind us of something or a situation or something that was traumatizing? 
Maybe, you know, we, we just have to be curious about it. Not judgmental. There's no right or wrong reason. Everyone's going to have different ones, but it's just important that instead of accepting it as fact and just dealing with it and like being uncomfortable, we instead figure out the why, what the root of it is, because that's where the work begins. Then we take that root issue and we work to heal it, right? Or work to process through it. Now, there was another uh, comment on this said, hopefully related. Oh, we got a Roxy girl. Um, says, I identified one of my core beliefs as, quote unquote, there's something wrong with me. And I guess the closer people are to me, the more likely they could see that. So I can talk with strangers pretty easily. Here we go, right? But if someone gets to know me better, I get anxious and can't be as open and relaxed. I also have a problem with physical closeness. It often makes me very uncomfortable. And I think it's because of a gynecological medical condition that I had as a kid, which involved people touching me. We don't talk enough about medical trauma. Maybe that's another video that I should do. Okay. Only recently, I somehow realized how this still affects me. Before, I wasn't consciously aware and no one ever talked to me about it. But I think that's where that core belief comes from and a lot of shame. I've never been in therapy, but I'd really like to become more comfortable with myself. I think in order to tolerate intimacy with others, I need to be comfortable with myself first. Agreed. Yes. Any tips on how to get there? Thanks for being such a great resource. Your videos and the podcast have helped me a lot to better understand myself. Yay. I'm so glad. Um, Okay. And then there's one final comment and we'll but it's a kind of an other side of things. So tips on how to get there. And I just, I really like this add on because the person has done the work that I'm kind of talking about where they're a detective, right? We're just trying, we're being curious. They've noticed that they have this core belief. There's something wrong with me, right? Shame probably associated with trauma, which then as we read through, you know, this thing happened to me. I had a gynecological medical condition when I was a child and a lot of people touched me and that can be really traumatizing, right? And so I think recognizing that that is is a shame belief and that that came out of a trauma and there is the trauma, we've identified it. And I know for everyone, it's not going to be so cut and dried, but just be patient with yourself as you detect, as you are curious um, and learn more about your own process. So anyways, um, the tips on how to get there, on how to, you know, so I've never been in therapy, but I'd really like to become more comfortable with myself. Therapy is really the best place to go for this, but tips on how to get there and getting comfortable with yourself have a lot to do with the messages that you allow to have to go on in your head, like the conversations that are happening in your head with yourself. There's probably shitty, you know, beliefs stemming off of that. There's something wrong with me belief, meaning there's other things like I'm so stupid. No one's ever going to like me. Um, I'm never going to be successful or I'm, I'm so lazy. People will, will always think that I'm weird. I don't know. There could be any number of these other beliefs. And I think paying attention to what you're saying to yourself and not allowing those things to just happen and be, you know, quote unquote facts is where the healing is going to begin and challenging those thoughts with bridge statements. And I've talked about these for a long time, but bridge statements are essentially not positive thoughts, but they're just not negative. So if, if one of those thoughts that stem from this this deep belief, right? If one of those thoughts is, um, I'm just so stupid, no one's ever gonna like me, right? A bridge statement would be, you know, I'm open to the fact that I might be being a little hard on myself and it is possible that others don't see me the way I see myself, right? Not positive, but not as negative. And it's funny how that small shift can really change your life. Um, and then honestly, I mean, therapy is really the key. I think you're going to need to do some trauma work because you were traumatized. I, d- I really don't feel um, 
I, I think it'd be best for you to do that. But then I also have videos on um, ways to build self-esteem and ways I have a video about fear of intimacy um, and other tips and things like that. There are, um, if any of you out there struggled with child uh, sexual abuse, the book Courage to Heal, it's like the Courage to Heal workbook has, I think it's like the last chapter, like 19 and 20, talk about like having healthy, happy sex lives as an adult out of that abuse and how do you move past it? So if any of you are like, I just really struggle to be touched or, you know, to have consensual sex without dissociating or any number of things, the Courage Teal workbook is really, really great for that. Um, but yeah, let's, the first step for this person, I think, is to notice those thoughts and to argue back with a little bit, just a little bit with some of those bridge statements. And that should get you there. Now, ooh, sorry, something in my eye. Now, there was a final add-on question that says, how do you interact with a friend who seems to struggle with intimacy? What are the do's and don'ts? Now, I wish I could list these off for you and say, oh, these are things that you should do. These are things that you don't do. But the truth about this, you have to let them tell you and teach you. And you have to be open to learning and seeking to understand. And what I mean by that is asking your friend in a time that's not emotionally charged, ways that you can best support them, you can even say if, if it's if it's something they've already mentioned, you can be like, I know you struggle with intimacy and I just, I want to be supportive. So what are things I can and can't do? And I would encourage you to have a couple ideas of examples first, because a lot of people, when we ask them questions like that, are like, oh, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it, right? It can be hard for us to come up with. Or we're like, I don't know. I don't like any touch. I don't know. But they should ask like, hey, sometimes when I want, when I come to see you, I want to give you a hug. Is that okay? Or, you know, when we sit down to watch a movie, do you want me right next to you? Is that too much? Would you prefer I was at the other end of the couch? You know, what are what are the points physical that they're okay and not okay with? And then we can get to emotional intimacy. So are there certain things you don't like to talk about that you'd prefer I stay away from? Is there like a code word we could have for that or a certain thing you can say or do to help me know that I'm like on a track you don't want to be on, right? Because even just by asking what those things are, they might have to mention it and they might not want to. So sometimes it's good just to have like code words or or they change the subject, you know, type of things. Um, but then just giving them time to be able to tell you because everybody's going to be different. Some people are going to be okay with a touch on the back or arm. Others are not. Some people are going to be okay with you asking about um, their last relationship or how they interact with their father. Others are not. And so we just have to ask questions and check back in and do our best to follow along with what they say is okay. We're human too. You don't have to beat yourself up if you overstep once or accidentally do something that you didn't realize was a trigger. It's up to them to communicate and educate us and it's up to us to do our best. We're human. We can apologize. Um, but that's really the best way to go about it. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, good morning, Katie. Good morning. It's actually pretty early here for me. It's like 10 in the morning. I don't usually record this early. So good morning. It says, when working with trauma, how do you build that window of tolerance? Great question. I feel at times that I'm stuck and I can't stop myself from dissociating. We have built several safety measures, worked on body awareness, but yet the, the second I um, the past comes into play, I can feel my anxiety climb and I tend to shut down. Does it ever just get to the point where you keep diving in a little at times and by doing this, it does get easier? Short answer is yes. Now, building the window of tolerance happens in two ways. Number one is your coping skills because 
you said you have several safety measures, but I'm wondering if you have activities, things that you're doing, distractions. Do you have fidget toys or thinking putty? Um, thinking putty is like silly putty. You can, any of those are fine, Play-Doh, whatever. I just like thinking putty because it comes in this cute tin and I always kept those in my office. Um, and they have big ones too, which are kind of nice if you really want to move uh, the stuff around. But anyway, I think body awareness, all that stuff is great. But what you're missing is something to help calm your system. You might want to color while you talk about something or like I said, fidget toy, uh, Play-Doh. You might want to do full body shake, shake it out. There might be different things that you want to try. I feel like the coping skills that you have are not effective. And so that's my first tip is to build that window of tolerance. We're going to need different coping skills. Now I have a video called 25 coping skills. I offer 24 and then encourage the community to put their other ones in the comments down below. So there's hundreds of them there. And I think it would be really helpful for you to check out that video. And you can just put 25 coping skills, Katie Morton into the search on YouTube and it should pop up. That's part of it. And that's probably the largest part. But then the second is the speed with which you might be going. Because building the window of tolerance is like, it's like we're kind of trying to slowly stretch. I, I don't want to say a rubber band because they always stretch, but let's say, let's say we're like working dough, right? If you've ever, and this might be a bad analogy, but just hang with me. If you've ever worked with dough, you can't just stretch it quick. It'll rip or it'll pull apart, right? You have a hole. So you're like, that's not going to work. You have to slowly knead it and roll it out little by little by little by little, you know, giving the the dough time to actually stretch, not rip. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to stretch this window of tolerance. And you might just be going too fast because if you're not able to stay present as a therapist, that's like a red flag to me. I'm like, oh, I'm going too fast or we don't have enough resources or coping skills to to fall back on or to rely on, right? And so those are the two things that I would encourage you to do. And you could, you know, tell your therapist like, hey, I'm still struggling, which sounds like they probably already know, but trying some of those different coping skills and telling them maybe we're going a little too fast because you said when anything comes to the past, so maybe we're not able to do that yet. Maybe instead we talk about, I mean, depends on how far back you can go, but maybe we talk about a more recent upsetting event and we work from there and how that ties into maybe the past. Then we jump back out, right? Then we, maybe later we stay a little bit longer in that past. We talk a little, then we jump back out. So it's all about the the pacing, the time, and the, the stress that you feel as a result of going into that. And it's like, we're slowly stretching that dough. We're going to go in, come out, soothe our system, do some things, do some coping skills. Then we might go back into that story a little bit. Oh, it's too much. Okay, come back out. <clears throat> the fact that you can feel your anxiety climb is amazing and super helpful. So letting your therapist know, hey, anxiety is climbing, then that would be a let's bounce back out. Let's do some other tools. That would be the gr a great, uh, I would love it if my patients would tell me that if they had that awareness. So do that. And then the final, <clears throat> final question, excuse me. Does it ever just get to the point where you keep diving in a little at times and by doing this, it does get easier? Yes. And that's exactly what we need to do. But in order for it to get easier and for us to be able to keep diving in, we're going to need those coping skills. We need more resources to get us through. Now, there was a comment on this and it says, as an add-on, is there a different way that you would handle an autistic client? I feel the same way. But instead of dissociating, I have an autistic shutdown. Okay, got you. There would, I would, I would handle it differently. Um, I think 
well, first of all, the tools, the resources, and those coping skills I'm talking about might be different for an autistic person and stemming. If you guys don't know what stemming is, it's, I guess the most common you see is like autistic people like little rock, like these repetitive motions. Um, as long as it's not harmful, because there are some stemming behaviors like banging your head against a wall, which can be, you know, harmful, obviously. But as long as it's not a harmful one, I think it's, it's totally fine. And that might be what I would lean into more. Um, it might also be harder for me to know when you're trying to shut down or when something's happening until it's already happening. Um, yeah, I guess in some ways, yes, I would handle it differently, but in others, no, because the tools and stuff would still, we'd still be coming up with different coping skills and resources, and we'd still make sure we're not going too much too fast but they, the way that we go about it might look a little bit differently, meaning your coping skills might look different. And almost everybody's coping skills look different, but I'm just saying that because of your autism, it might, you know, it might require different coping skills. Um, yeah. And I guess, I guess that's really it. I think there's a huge, I was just talking to another member of our community the other day, and she was saying how life-changing it is to have a therapist who really understands and specializes in um, autism or autism spectrum disorder, ASD. And as someone who does not specialize in that, I couldn't agree with something more because even though I understand it from a, a bare bones can take a test, you know, you you all have shared a lot with me. So I've learned more over the years, but the fact that I don't specialize and I don't keep up with it all the time and I don't see patient after patient after patient with it, makes me not the best for it. It would be better for you to see someone who really got it, who could work with you, would understand maybe some of the behavioral things that are going on that I might I might just miss, you know, because I'm not used to paying attention to that. I'm used to paying attention to like eating disorder stuff and body checking behaviors like that stuff. I've got, I'm, I'm on it. But it might be good for you to have someone who truly understands. Um, but overall, just from an outside, like, from my perspective, there wouldn't be a lot of difference. It just might be a little bit different for you. Does that make sense? I hope, I hope so. Okay. Now, um, a question on this says, Hey Katie, on a somewhat related note, is it common to struggle with generalized anxiety and dissociation? They seem completely different. So I find it hard to understand why I struggle with both. They're not completely different. It's very, very common. Anxiety is interesting I feel like almost everybody's anxious. It's the most common mental illness, okay? And I don't say everybody's anxious to like minimize it or downplay or make people who really struggling feel like that that's not, you know, it's not warranted. That's not what I mean. <clears throat> I just mean that with the pandemic and everything that's happening, I think we all have a certain level of anxiety that we live with. And anxiety can cause dissociation. That's why you're struggling with both. I have so many patients who have... um you know, struggle with dissociation when they are about to have a panic attack. They can feel their anxiety building. And then instead of panicking, dissociation. Remember, dissociation is like our brain pulling the ripcord. It's like, oh, this is just too uncomfortable. I can't be here right now. Boop. Or it's too dangerous psychologically for me to stay present in this moment. Ripcord pulled out. And so for you, your dissociation is probably like directly linked to your anxiety and that overwhelm that comes along with it is why it pulls you out. Um, so dissociation is really just a coping skill and it can be attached to anything. I've had patients um, who dissociate when super depressed, I've had patients dissociate obviously when they're trauma triggered, um, stress related things at work, 
um, even being late to a session with me, I had a patient who like overwhelmed herself on her way in, all that stuff. So even though they feel different, dissociation is just a coping skill for your anxiety, essentially. And, you know, that's why dissociation is so common. Okay. Now, somebody else says, same here as an add-on, in addition to the window of tolerance and mindfulness, my therapist told me that I need to get better. Um, I need to better know myself to heal from my traumas. Hmm. How do I get to know, how do I get to better know myself in a practical way? I'm kind of self-aware, but I couldn't predict my reactions that much. Thanks for all that you do. That's a great question. And that's a weird, I don't really like that statement from your therapist. Like I need to better know myself. You're like, okay, mm, I'll do my best. I'll work on that. Right. Um, I think a better way to phrase that, and I assume this is what your therapist means, is that we have to be in our bodies. We have to actually be present in order to process our traumas. And that is the truth. You don't have to know yourself better, but I can see what why you would say it's that way because it's like we need to get to know the sensations that we feel when maybe we're triggered and it's early on, or maybe we need to know when our anxiety is like is starting to build. It's not at the top yet and it's not in the middle. I'm like, oh, it's creeping. I feel it. The more we can tap into our bodily responses or our thoughts and feelings as they swirl and be more aware of them, the better we will be not only to talk about and process what we've been through and what we're going through right now, but also to use our coping skills in a timely manner and um, make sure those are healthy coping skills, you know, not drug, alcohol, injury, self-injury, eating disorder, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. The sooner, the better. And so I think I would push back on that, that it's not that you need to know yourself, you to better know yourself in order to heal. It's that we have to tap back into the sensations and the signals that our body is sending to us that we've been ignoring forever. And that tapping back in, you know, can be done um, through like somatic experiencing. One of the first examples or exercises that Dr. Peter Levine, the creator of it offers is I don't think it has a name, but it's like when you're in the shower, he says to buy like a shower head that you can move with your hand, right? It's like, has that little connector. So you can like take it off, take it down and putting it on like your hand and saying, this is my hand. Um, I welcome myself back into it. And I know it can be a little woo woo. You don't have to do all of it, but we got to start somewhere, right? This is my forearm. This is my, uh, you know, bicep, my shoulder. We go through all the different parts of our body, acknowledging that, you know, that is what it is. We can tap into how the warm water feels on our body. You could also do this when you're putting lotion on, I think would be another good example of ways to, this is my arm. I feel, you know, it feels good to rub on it. I feel the tension release, you know, things like that. Tapping back in is one of the best ways to, to start that, like get to know you process. Okay. I hope that helps. And yeah, that's why I, I'm not perfect. And I've, I'm sure I've said a hundred things to my patients. They're like, I don't get that. But that's why it's so important that as a therapist, we say things clearly and concisely and ask our patients if they have questions. Because when we say things like, you got to get to know yourself better, you're like, how, you know, excuse me, I need more clarification. Um, And so, yeah, anyway, that's what I think your therapist means. Okay. Moving on to question three. Says Katie, I've been seeing a lot of people on TikTok talking about how they sort of habitualized a certain food, like the same bedtime snack every night or same breakfast every morning, not out of an eating disorder, but just because creature of habit. And then all of a sudden that food out of nowhere becomes repulsive. And I can so relate. 
Why is this? I can eat an apple every night for a bedtime snack, and then all of a sudden, after a few weeks, the idea of an apple is disgusting. Then I sit on a bunch of apples that I thought I'd eat, and they go bad. For context, I don't have an eating disorder, but I do have anxiety and ADHD. Thanks. So my brain immediately went to ADHD. Um, only because, and I don't specialize in ADHD, so you know, take this with a grain of salt, but I do know that when it comes to ADHD and food, a lot of people have this kind of behavior where it's like, we want to have the same thing, same thing, same thing. And then because ADHD can come with this huge level of like impulsiveness, we can be like, oh, and we want something different. Right. And it's, um, I don't think it's a bad thing. This is such an interesting question. And I'm sure there is a neurologist out there that can answer it more fully because what I know about food likes and dislikes has, it's not just related to eating disorders, but I've dealt with a lot of picky eaters in my practice over the years. And let me just give you a little bit of context about what I know and why I think this is happening. Okay. So the reason that we like and dislike foods has a lot to do with either when it was um, given to us, which is why they encourage parents when children are young and starting on foods to try a bunch of different foods because uh, people who like things, let's say like durian fruit or um, I don't know, just very, very polarizing food, right? If you don't know durian fruit, like smells like a dead body, but it's very custardy and sweet and a lot of people really like it. But they say that people whose parents introduced them to it or it was part of their culture, they ate it very early on. It just becomes part of like what they were used to. And so it's not so foreign. It's not so overwhelming. And it's even if they hear people talking about it, they're like, oh yeah, I've had it. It's good, right? So not only were we introduced to it at a young age, but we also have a history of eating it and liking it. And it's not associated with you know, illness or anything like that. So we just think, oh, it's good. So that's part of why we decide what we like and tastes and desire of certain foods is gradual. So when we start out as children, let's say we're eating like broccoli uh, puree with like chicken or whatever, right? So those flavors become quote unquote normal to us. And we can pair them with let's like even as a kid I remember my mom would put a little bit of cheese on our broccoli because I hated broccoli and she put a little cheese on them and that made it really good so she's pairing something that I already like with something that maybe I don't like and so therefore um I came to associate broccoli with being good because it had cheese on it and I know this sounds I'm very I'm simplifying a shitload of research okay by the way but that pairing can slowly and gradually allow me to associate broccoli with yummy, good things, right? Instead of what I used to without the cheese would be like, it's bad and terrible. And so that helps us also change what we like and don't like because of association. Now, there's another component of, let's say I had broccoli one time and I got super, super sick and maybe it didn't even have anything to do with the broccoli. Like, let's say it was the chicken I ate. It wasn't good and I got food poisoning. Um, and there's actually some foods I still can't eat because I got food poisoning. But that association with the illness can be detrimental to those foods. And so that's why we can go from liking something to not liking something. It can be because of illness. Now, I could really, there's so much about this and picky eating and where it comes from. And there can be a sense of control. There can be like eating disorder stuff too. That's not how this question, that's not what's happening this question. But I had uh, patients in the past who, utilized being a picky eater to get more time with mom or dad or to get special treatment and get a little bit more attention, right? There are some things we can do with food 
But all in all, I just wanted to, in a very brief and a very incomplete manner, tell you why we can like like certain things other people don't like and where kind of our tastes and likes come from, okay? Again, so much more research and I'm not doing it justice, but that's just like bare bones, okay? So that's where our desire for certain foods come in. Here's what I think is happening and why this happens to people where you like a food for a long time and then all of a sudden repulsive. Our bodies are extremely adaptive. They are, they know what we need and what we don't need. Our body will tell us to eat uh, apples, let's say. And then when we don't need what's in an apple anymore, we're like, we're all full here. We got plenty of fiber. We got all this vitamin A or D or whatever, whatever's in an apple. I don't even know. Um, Now I want eggs, right? Switch it up. I need other things. Maybe I want some, you know, uh, I don't know, spinach or milk. I need potassium. I need calcium, whatever. Our body craves food and likes and dislikes food to in order to get us the nutrients it needs. It's very, very smart. And so whenever this happens, when all of a sudden you become repulsed by something, I think it's either like, again, the illness thing, if that connects with people, then just that happens all the time. But the second I believe is our body being resourceful and knowing that it doesn't need that stuff anymore because we honestly ate it all the time, probably too much, right? We need a very well-balanced variety of a diet, but we're creatures of habit. Um, Anyway, so because it has all of that stuff, it's telling us now it needs something different. And I think that's why that happens. And in order to get us to eat that something different, it has to make that other thing repulsive because otherwise we'll just keep eating it because you probably needed those other nutrients for a while and your body's like, maybe we'll get sick of this. Maybe we'll want something different, you know? Um. And even I think ADHD could play into it a little bit. I know, but I don't know. My ADHD patients tend to oversalt their food. Um, They tend to be a little bit more impulsive, but I can't, I don't think it's affected at least. I know texture for some of my ADHD and even my autistic people, texture can be really uncomfortable and that can be it all of a sudden. They're like, oh, can't, I don't like this texture anymore all of a sudden. Um, But I don't know if that would necessarily play into it. Okay. But those are just my thoughts. I don't have a full great answer, right? This isn't, I only know when it comes to like eating disorder stuff and like being a picky eater and where that comes from. But hopefully that just helps you maybe better understand. But if anybody does have an answer, if we have like neurologists out there or someone who was part of some of this research, because it's really fascinating to read about and you have more, a more complete answer, please feel free to leave it in the comments. But with that, let's move on to question number four. And it says, If someone has had an eating disorder for a long time, let's say five or 10 plus years, how likely are they to recover in your experience? If it's a stuck eating disorder at that point, or sorry, if it's a stuck eating disorder, at what point would you suspect something underlying like other mental health conditions, for example, that haven't been addressed? And how would you go about working on that while the eating disorder is masking it? For context, this is if you can't afford to have lots or if any treatment. Um, oh, and they said, thank you so much for all the invaluable advice on your channel. Of course, of course. Now there's also a follow-up says following up on this, um, though, as this is something I've always wondered, Katie, you always say that you develop an eating disorder as a way to cope, which I get, but with eating disorders or any mental illnesses, how do you treat the issues? Like, which do you aim to treat first in the UK? They never focus on the underlying issues and instead address only the eating disorder itself. That is not correct. I hate that they do that. But in an ideal way, how would you manage both? You need to work on the underlying issues, which I fully get, but how do you also then balance managing the eating disorder behaviors also? 
Sorry, this has been so long, but how do you suggest managing recovering long-term when in the UK, they only focus primarily on the eating disorder and not the issues underlying this? That's, that's fucking stupid. What are these people, stupid? What's wrong with them? Why would you treat just the symptom? Eating disorders are just a symptom, by the way. They're a coping skill. It, yes, I know it's a dangerous coping skill. So is addiction, but you can't just get the food stuff going because then all the other stuff's going to be going crazy. That's why <clears throat> this pisses me off. Sorry. That's why a full treatment team in the States and where I've worked, if you're not inpatient, inpatient's ideal because the thing that's great about being in treatment, if you, if you can take the time off and can afford it and can do it is that you, you not only get support around the food and you're fed, you know, every three to four hours, you have three meals and three snacks every day. And you can get into this like rhythm of that. And you're getting support around food and everybody else is eating with you and everybody's eating much the same thing. Then you have the emotional component. You have like food and feelings group or whatever, which everybody hates and I get it. But then you get to process through what came up for you because you were eating, right? If, we are, if we're not binging, if we're not overeating and we're not under eating and we're not over exercising, and we're not abusing laxatives or purging or whatever, then what do we think about? What do we feel? What's happening? What's coming up for us, right? And all of that is really important because that's why the eating disorder exists because the eating disorder exists to mask it. Um, okay, I'm ranting because this pisses me off. But I think when it comes to what to treat first, there's no first. It's actually simultaneous because one is connected to the other and one doesn't exist without the other. And so if we work on, let's say it's trauma that caused our eating disorder, if we work on the trauma, then the eating disorder is going to go crazy. It's going to, because it's it's there to numb us out. And so if we're tapping in, it's like, well, it's got to work overtime to try to numb. But if we only work on the food, then, you know, the trauma still exists. And then we're still dealing with it and the eating disorder still needs to be here and it's not going to go anywhere. And so I really think it's a simultaneous thing. And the best way would be to have a dietitian, I guess, on board to help you with like meal plans and food and then a therapist because it's, it's not about the fucking food. It's just not. And so, yeah, I wish I had a better answer. Um, I think a dietitian working with them, you probably have to see them like every couple weeks for a little while. And then you could go out to like once a month for, you know, financially, if that's a little bit cheaper and then having real therapy, like whether that's, um, I mean, there's even free groups. I don't, I know, I know they have some binge eating and bulimia, um, and trauma groups over on hope for recovery. Um, that's a great resource. Those are a free resource. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of other like cheaper options. There's better help. I have links in all my descriptions. There's Talkspace, another online therapy resource. Crisis text line can be kind of supportive, but it's not therapists. Um, yeah, so that those are my thoughts. And you can always ask people to work on a sliding scale if money's difficult. Um, Eating in the Light of the Moon is another great book to pick up. Uh, the Intuitive Eating Workbook, as we get better at feeding ourselves or, you know, not overfeeding ourselves, like intuitive eating is really, really helpful. And that's something that I I recommend to all my patients. Obviously, I let their dietitian decide if they're ready for it or not. But yeah, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I'm sorry treatment sucks so bad in the UK. Why would they think that you could just treat the food, the eating disorder? God, the ignorance is so exhausting sometimes. Okay. Question number five. 
says, hello, Katie, I hope you're well. I am, I hope you are well. I was seeing a, psycho a psychotherapist for help to address my childhood emotional neglect and all also other traumatic things that have happened. I saw him for about two years, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to continue to see him because it was provided by the NHS. That's the national healthcare system in the UK. I felt like I opened up the equivalent of Pandora's box and discovered things that I either forgot about or didn't realize that they, the impact that they had on me. And I went to see a private therapist because I was really struggling with emotional flashbacks and very dark thoughts. With my new therapist, I was opening up more to her than I ever did with the previous therapist, even though it had only been about two months. Due to unforeseen circumstances, therapy had to come to an end. So I only saw her for three months. This is where things confuse me. During the past five to six years, I get emotional flashbacks from my childhood and from other traumatic events, which is why I started therapy. Ever since therapy had to stop, it's like things have stopped. I rarely get flashbacks. In fact, it's as if it happened in a different life. I know it sounds like a weird description, but I'm confused by all of this. It's weird. It's like a weird sense of feeling cut off from my past. And it's also like my brain has the equivalent of horse, uh, oh, the blinders. Yeah. I try to think about my past, but it's like there's a complete disconnect. It's like the emotions have gone. I don't understand because I know I haven't fully processed the trauma. Does this mean I don't need therapy anymore? Please, can you give me some insight into what's going on for me? Thanks for all that you do. Of course, and unfortunately, no, this doesn't mean that you don't need therapy. Our brain and body, super adaptive and will do anything to help us survive. Now, these emotional flashbacks you were experiencing, I assume are really uncomfortable and making it hard for you to function. So your body and brain were like, you know what? We don't have any place to deal with this anymore. So we're just gonna stuff it back where it was and kind of like shut it back into Pandora's box. Yes, you still remember, know that it's there, but it's like until we're safe enough, meaning in a therapy session, until we're there, we're just gonna stuff it down. And it's helpful while you try to find another therapist, which is what I encourage you to do, because it's still there. You still need to process it. Essentially, your brain and body are just like back burnering it. They're like, not now. I can't do it now. I have to just stuff it deep Ugh. and it will come out. Um, and I'd rather you are making the choice for it to come out than for it to just push its way out through other PTSD symptoms, whether that's hypervigilance or flashbacks or nightmares or night terrors or dissociation or just to self-injure suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, whatever. I'd rather you get to decide when it comes out and you're like, you know what? I want to talk about this. I know it's uncomfortable, but here I go. And so that's what I would really encourage you to do. Find another therapist. Um, but our our brain and body are just super adapt adaptive. And so it's like, you know, in order to for us to adapt and continue to live and grow, we can't deal with this right now. So it's just stuffing it down. And that's very normal. We do that all the time. Like, um, you know, when you're in a really stressful situation, but you have to perform anyway. Like I had this happen to me where I woke up as a new, in New York City and I had to give a talk at uh, Google or YouTube headquarters or something. And I forget what it, oh, it was about community. And I was talking to um, other companies essentially about what I do. And I got news that my papa had passed away. And it was so weird even thinking about it because I woke up at like 7 a.m. New York time. And if you don't know, my family's from Washington State. So they're three hours back. So that would have made it four, yeah, four in the morning. And it never even occurred to me when my mom was calling me like four in the morning, it's so early. But she wanted to tell me, so I didn't hear from anybody else that he had passed away in the middle of the night. And um, 
I had to go give that talk and oh my God, like I don't even remember most of it. Hello, dissociation. But I, everybody's like, you did such a good job. And and I, I mean, I, I got tearful during it because I have to read a letter from my community and that stuff always gets me going anyways, but not to this amount. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And everybody's like, no, it was beautiful. Blah. It was because of that, but I still was able to like stuff it down enough to like get through my day and do what I needed to do and then like fly home that night. It was such a shit show but we're really adaptive. It know our body and brain know what we need to do and what we need to accomplish. And it, mine was like, you know what? You just have to like fucking stuff it, white knuckle, get through this. You can cry about this later. You know, you can deal with this later. And that's essentially what's happening right now for you. So I hope that that helps and makes sense. Moving on to question number six. It says, hey, Katie, how do you know if you've truly forgiven someone? Mm, emotional charge, but we'll get into it. I had my trust broken in my marriage recently, and I'm trying to find balance between giving permission to feel hurt, but also not holding a grudge. But I feel like this could apply to plenty of other scenarios. Hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Ooh, it's got a Sean sneeze there. Don't know if you heard it, but it was there. Okay. Um, the way we know if we've truly forgiven someone is this emotional charge, meaning do we feel that little tickle of anger or jealousy or even rage? Um, do we feel that come to life when we're around them or when we talk about certain things and get ourselves, can we get ourselves going? It's that lack of charge and the ability to stay in our wise mind, meaning not emotion mind. So we're able to see things clearly, talk about things in a very unemotional way. You know, we can talk about the facts. Like I felt this way when this happened. You know, I know you could say that's emotion, but I'm saying we're not getting emotional. We're talking about what happened. If we're able to stay in that space, relatively easily, I would say we've forgiven someone. I know the old adage, especially because I was raised in church, is like, forgive and forget. What? You know, we we aren't going to be able to forget. Shit happened, but we can forgive and move on and choose to not dwell. And I think that's really what that forgive and forget means. And forgiveness, by the way, means that we're letting ourselves out of the cage of anger, rage, and all of that. It's not condoning their behavior. Forgiveness doesn't mean acceptance of it just throwing that out there. Okay. Um, so that emotional charge is really important. Pay attention to that. Now, when it comes to having your trust broken in your marriage, maybe lied to, cheated on, whatever, the best, I, I have a video about this, but the best way to move past it is they have to allow us access for a short period of time. Let's say like six months, three months, a uh, full access to like their phone. They have no privacy for a little while. Um, and they have to give in to that. And then after that time, when that time is up, we have to decide and give in to stay. If we decide to stay with them, we have to decide that we're not going to look back and hold a grudge. We're not going to continue to harm them with what they did. We, we choose to move forward also. And so in a way, by them giving up their privacy for a while, they're trying to, you know, we're slowly building trust back. And then we have to decide that we're going to choose trust, which I know, ugh. I'm not saying I can do it personally. I'm just saying that that's, that's what we know works best. And that's kind of the therapeutic stance. Now, there was a comment on this. It said, in addition to this, how do you make the, the determination if you should forgive someone, especially when it's family, for their wrongdoing? What if what they did wasn't that bad, but you're just getting tired of their negative patterns? Mm. For example, recently they lied to others saying that I never thanked them for Christmas gifts or that I rarely visited my parents who recently passed while he was in a facility when I was the one to visit the most. Again, small examples and not bad, but it was another 
attempt to vilify me to other family. Sounds like you got a narcissist um, in your family. They also make racist comments about others. We're all white and have actually said mean things to other families. That's not okay. But only recently to me, just to give a little more context to my issues with them, I have a history of emotionally shutting down and ignoring the issue, but I also don't want to fight for a relationship just for the sake of overcoming my own struggles. How do I tell the difference? Or can it sometimes be both a relationship not worth saving and emotional dissociation? Yes, sometimes it can be both. Um, I am <laughs> patterns is that's what a therapist lives in. I think this is why there are certain points in my life as a non like as a person, right? Not therapist Katie, just being Katie, where there'll be this like line I almost like draw in the sand without realizing it, where I'm like, wow, this is a really bad pattern of behavior. I've seen this happen, boop, 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 boop. I don't know how many times it's not like it's like five times and then fuck you. But there's all of a sudden this like in my in my bones where I'm like, we can't have a relationship anymore. It's too much. This pattern isn't changing. And that's what I encourage everybody to kind of pay attention to. It's not about the size of the the wound or the thing that took place. It's, there might be one thing that could happen and that's happened to me too, where I'm like, oh, the, this person can't be in my life anymore, right? You can have one instance where you're like, whoa, that's not okay. That's a big, you know, breach of boundaries or privacy or they're racist or abusive or whatever, right? Mm-mm, no. So you can have that moment or you can have a bunch of little things. There's almost like little T's, but it's like they're little transgressions. I like to think of them as is like they just aren't good and we don't like them. And if you look back on your years with this person, you see all of them, boom, 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 boom. And they're always the same and they're not changing. And this is over years, right? Now, I do believe in trying to give people a second chance. It sounds like you already have, but for anybody out there, if you see, if you're just now recognizing this pattern and you haven't ever told them it's not okay and you haven't, um, you know, tried to reconcile, apologize for your part in things, given it another chance, at least give it one of those chances. Sometimes I'll do two, but that's about it. Because once we've told people what's not okay, we've told them what we're seeing, we've, I see this happening. Now, I know this is hard for a lot of you, but we can't have healthy relationships if we can't communicate upsets. And if we say this to someone, hey, you know, when you say things like this to me, I find it really hard to continue our relationship. Or when you, you know, talk shittily about my sister or about me to others or whatever's happening in this dynamic, you know, it makes it hard for me to want to see you. It's, it's really difficult. I wish you wouldn't do that. You know, if the person erupts and is like, fuck you, you're so, you have your answer. This is not a relationship I can have. Wow. Right. Or if they hear you and then nothing changes, you also have your answer. And then the third option obviously is that they change and you're like, yay. And then things are wonderful. But if there is a pattern of wrongdoing that this, I mean, to be honest, just in this small comment that this person left about the things that have happened, I would not talk to this person anymore, but I don't know the full, you know, you get to decide for you. I'm just telling you what I would do. And I think that patterns of behavior tell you a lot about a person. One-offs, we all can fuck up. There's things that will keep me awake at night where I'm like, why'd you say that stupid thing, Katie? That was so stupid. You looked so dumb. Why'd you do that? Or you know, you should have called that person back more quickly. Oh, like it's so unthoughtful of you or so rude, right? I can beat myself up over those one, the one-offs, but 
but the patterns of how you interact with people are much more important. And the fact that this person, I mean, even just the things they're doing, I'm just like, mm-mm. I already myself, I'm like, no, no, no. Um, so you have every right to not have a relationship with them. And then the question at the end says, how do you tell the difference? Or can it sometimes be both? It can be both. So there can be a shitty relationship that's happening, but because it's so shitty, you're triggered and you're dissociating because you're getting emotionally overwhelmed. And I think that those, honestly, working on staying present and not doing the shutdown dissociation kind of thing is something that you can work on in therapy. But the fact that you are shutting down, it just shows you that this is like not a healthy relationship for you at the moment. Doesn't mean we can't revisit, but at the moment, it's a no-go. Okay? Let's move on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. I'm just wondering how to deal with being highly empathic while struggling with, uh, while struggling myself. Ooh, yeah, that could be hard. Emotionally abusive father sometimes questioned if he was a narcissist, if possible. And I can tell how he is by how he coughs, breathes, or walks. Ooh, it saved you from explosions of anger, right? He's uh, prone to very low moods to the point where it's scary, but he won't get help. He'll never talk about it unless he's blaming someone for his low mood. And I couldn't talk to him about it because we're not close at all. But it worries me and plays on my mind when, when I can constantly tell how he is, but I feel like I can't do anything about it. I'm in my 20s, but he still has the attitude that I'm still a child and not worth talking to. We can't change his mind. I get increased suicidal ideation too from this because I don't know how to cope or to make anything better. And it feels so out of my control because it is, is his life, not yours. Though I feel guilty about making it my problem. Sorry, this is so long, but any help or advice would be so, so appreciated. Lots of love. Um, okay. Being empathic is awesome in some ways because I'm like you, I can read a room and I can read people and be like, they're not in a good mood. I'm not going to bring that up right now. No. Right. And it, it's helped me because I'm a people pleaser. I don't like conflict. And so I can do it. It, it helps me be able to please people so that there is no conflict. Right. And, but super unhealthy because, so being empathic can be helpful in certain situations, but it's very, very rare that it would be that helpful. And the fact that we almost overuse it, right? It's like this muscle that we're like working all the time means that, and this is what my therapist told me. So just hear me out. And it's kind of a a head explosion kind of feeling. But if we spend all our time being empathic, feeling for others, reading a room, what's going on here? How are you feeling? All of that. If we spend all of our time doing that, we don't spend any time checking in with ourselves be empathic towards yourself. How are you doing? And I know you might've just thought it doesn't matter how I'm doing. It really fucking matters. It matters more than anybody else because you have zero control over how other people feel, how other people act, how other people think, zero control. Nothing you can do can make anybody act in any different of a way. Honestly, the only thing is you can instigate things. I mean, you could start a fight, you know, And even then, we don't know if they're going to react in the way that we might hope. So we really, again, have zero control, okay? We only have control over ourselves and we only get one, one us. And so my therapist always cautioned me that the more time I spend being empathic to others, the less time I'm spending it on myself. So just pay attention to that. That was like a game changer for me because I can still read the room or read a person, but that doesn't mean I have to engage with it. In my brain, and this might help you, might not, everybody's going to be different, but in my brain, I can notice when I'm doing it and I can say to myself, that's not helpful. Let's move on. 
and it doesn't work all the time, but it works most of the time. And you, it's like we're building a new muscle and that muscle gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So you're not responsible for how other people feel. You didn't put your father into this situation. You have no control over it. Um, he won't get help. That's all you can really do is just check in on him. But I might even encourage you not to for a little bit because this isn't very good for you. Um, but all you can really do is check in on people and offer to support positive behavior. So if he was all of a sudden like, I want to go to see a therapist, you'd be like, I'll take you or I'll help pay for it or whatever, whatever you're able to do. Um, but that's about it. And it's okay. And I think there might be a lot of grieving that needs to happen for the father you never had, but you're not responsible for his emotional state at all. Now, there was a comment on this as I'm in a similar boat and was wondering how to manage when one parent is emotionally abusive, also narcissistic and adamantly unwilling to go to counseling to work on our relationship. And the other one is our biggest supporter. It's always that way. It's because the narcissist has that nice one that's the narcissistic supply. But they both live together and are very much in love. My sibling, who is also my best friend, lives there as well. I can't expect my parents to break up or my sibling to move out, but I can't imagine cutting off all contact with the most amazing cheerleader and my very best friend just to avoid the other parent. And yet the other parent is just so toxic in my life, even though I'm not living there during the academic year. What are some ways to cope with a situation like this? It's so hard to self-soothe and cope around this parent, but I can't avoid this parent altogether if I want to have a relationship with the two greatest people in my life who live there. And if I want to have a roof over my head during school breaks, I'm saving up to move out completely. But until I get there, what are some ways to cope? and self-soothe in an environment like that when you feel so stuck. This is really tricky. And I have a couple thoughts. Now, the first is communicating. If you feel ready, communicating to your, you know, the parent who's super, your biggest supporter and your best friend, your sibling, if you can communicate to them about your feelings and experience with this. Okay. I don't like, I'm just going to make it a, I don't know, but let's say it's your dad. Okay. So if your dad is the narcissist and we don't want to be around him, he's super, super toxic. And everything he says is just like, ugh. I mean, like avoid him as much as possible. That's, that's the key is just avoiding him as much as possible, but we're going to need our biggest supporter and best friend to help us out with that. And I think what that means is that you let them know about your feelings and your experiences, but, and not in a way of where you need to paint them horribly. You can just say, you know, I find that they've done this and this and and there's, a, you know, this pattern of behavior and the way that they interact with me, I find it really difficult, but I love you guys so much. I still want to spend time and I, I'm not going to avoid them altogether because I know I can't because I want you in my life. And then we, then, so we set the stage for what I would call kind of a reconstruction. So we have this like old house that we'd built, right? And the way that things functioned and we're like tearing it down. And we're going to put dad in this like room off to the side. We're like, hey, when I'm at home for breaks, I can't completely avoid him, but I can do as much as possible. And I can make sure that I like see him the least amount of time. I can keep myself busy. I can go out of the house for things. And then I can spend time in my room when I need a break, right? So there's things we can do there. But then we're going to reconstruct, meaning how do we want to engage with our biggest supporter and our best friend from like from here on out, meaning we go out to lunch or we know when he's not around and we come over to the house then. Now I know you go there for breaks, but right now you don't live there. So what are the ways that we can interact so that we don't have to see him at all? Um, because we can't control him. He's not going to want to get help. It's not getting better. You're not responsible, but you still want to cultivate those relationships. So how can we do that? 
and this could even in the future look like like once you're older and like you moved out completely and stuff i could be like oh we take like a weekend together somewhere like your you know your sibling and your mom like we can do that or you know i think there are ways that we can make it work we can minimize the amount of time that we spend and the number of times we see them and if this still continues to harm you you have to decide like what other steps you're willing to take. But I think those are some two pretty good starter steps so that you are spending less time feeling less overwhelmed or less stressed out or, you know, around that talk toxicity. Um, we just want to keep that to a bare minimum. Make sense? I hope so. Let's move on to question number eight. It says, how does one differ between urges that are biologically driven and aren't really choices and ones that are self-induced habits? I'm in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder and am honoring mental hunger. However, sometimes I get confused if it's mental hunger or my binging habit. I trust that when I reach a healthy weight, my hunger will normalize and this habit of eating loads will subside because the body doesn't need quite as much fuel anymore. However, how is it that some people who are very heavy to the point where it's not healthy for the body anymore not uh, don't have subsiding hunger? Or is it just a habit um, or something deeper? Love this question. So people who are very heavy to the point where it's not healthy for their body anymore um, are what's known as binge eaters. And we don't talk about that as as often, but in the same way that being hungry and not feeding our bodies can be a coping skill, uh, overfeeding our bodies can be a coping skill. And the pendulum can swing and it's all eating disorder behavior and it's honestly all the same. Um, and I guess the question of biologically driven self-induced habits so people who are overweight and, you know, get extremely heavy and it's not healthy for their body, it's actually detrimental. I mean, there's, let's not leave out the genetic component or uh, other ailments, right? Like if you have a chronic illness or a thyroid problem that can affect our hunger, fullness, weight gain, stuff like that. Um, or, you know, uh, autoimmune, there can be other things going on that can contribute to our size. I'm not talking about someone who's just a different size from someone else. I'm talking about someone who, you know, is constantly overeating and therefore is gaining weight. That to me is an eating disorder because we're not actually tapping into our hunger fullness cues. And that means that we're most likely numbing out from our trauma or our upset or our whatever by eating until we're uncomfortably full. Now, the definition of binge eating disorder, or not the definition, but the way it's diagnosed is that we eat more than a normal amount of food in a short amount of time. So we're binging. And then we don't do any compensatory behaviors, meaning we don't work out, we don't, you know, purge, we don't do any of uh, laxative abuse, things like that. We don't do any of that to make up for it. We binge eat. And that overly full feeling or that fixation on getting food and eating food all the time keeps us numbed out from everything else that's going on for us. So, so that's that. I just wanted to get that out there because what you're mentioning is another eating disorder. But then when you're talking about biologically driven versus self-induced habits, that's going to take time. And what I would encourage you to do, the thing that I have my patients do is to check in with yourself. Like in the, the intuitive eating workbook has you do hunger fullness check-ins, but I always have my patients do emotional check-ins and hunger fullness check-ins. So um, 
hunger fullness is like zero to 10, zero being like starving would kill you to eat. 10 being like, if I bend over, I'm going to throw up. I've overeaten. Like I've binged maybe. And you want to start eating when you're around like a four or a five. And you want to stop when you're around like a seven or an eight. And eight is like, I think I may have had one bite too many. Seven is like, I'm pleasantly full satiated. Now, emotionally, we have to do the same thing. Zero being like, I'm so calm, I'm asleep. 10 being like, I'm dissociated or I'm having a panic attack. I'm so maxed out. Now, when we eat before, we want to check in. Are we like an eight? Maybe we're not going to be able to tap into our hunger fullness cues because we're too emotionally charged. Maybe we're like at a four. We're like, you know, I'm I'm just hanging out, doing my thing, right? So we're going to have to check in on these hunger fullness cues and these emotional hunger fullness cues. And that will help us better learn whether it's like biologically driven, like our body needs that, or if it's a self-induced habit. And it takes time. We're getting to know ourselves again. Be patient with yourself and your progress. Um, You know, talk to your treatment team about it. And just trust me when I tell you that it will get better, okay? Now, there was a comment on this. It says, as an add-on, why does anorexia nervosa recovery turn into bulimia nervosa for some people and not for others? It just depends. Eating disorders are chameleons, so they will shape, shift, and change in order to hang around. Now, for some people, that means that you go into treatment and you have to eat these meals, so you can't restrict anymore, so then you find yourself purging as a way to still restrict, right? Okay, so that's how some people get around it. Other people go into recovery and are either able through brute force or just they're ready to recover, do not shift in. Also, I've had patients in the past who have like, um, is it emetophobia? I think is it when your fear of vomiting. I've had patients who have that. So like the idea of it is just, it's so terrifying. They could never. So that doesn't happen. Um, also, some people are just ready for recovery, like I was saying. So they they recover and they don't go into another eating disorder. It, they might struggle later and we can kind of over years maybe shift and not have not like not such a direct or clear cut shift. Um, everybody's going to be a little bit different. And so I think that's really why. And some people, their, their eating disorder is focused on either binging or restricting and that's how they it helps them cope. And so the if if their anorexia did shift into bulimia, it wouldn't do the same thing for them. Does that make sense? Like, uh, for instance, I had a patient years ago who uh, her abuser, her sexual abuser told her he liked how uh, how like squishy, plump she was. She was like a little kid. Um, and so she wanted to lose weight and be bony. So she wasn't attractive to him anymore. Um, and that's a very common uh, thing. And so you could see how, you know, that might affect our eating disorder and why we might not, you know, binge as a result. Okay. And there was also an add-on to this that says, yes, I really wonder about this. Katie, I asked a question a few videos back back about restricting and binging. And you suggested that I tried eating whatever I wanted for a few weeks and said that this should help balance it out, which it did. Yay. At the time, I didn't notice it getting better, but it's only when I slipped into being restrictive again that I was like, wow, I had two weeks of freedom, which was amazing. I'm now stuck in the restrict binge cycle again. Any ideas on how to maintain this for longer than a few weeks is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for everything you do. You're amazing. I think in order to actually fully break out of that binge restrict cycle, we have to, if you hear the dinging, it's because my dog is hitting the doorbell because she wants out now. Um, But I think in order to fully get out of that binge restrict cycle, we not only have to... um, work in therapy to figure out the root, right? We have to remember that the eating disorder is a coping skill. And so if we don't heal that root or we don't 
figure out what it is and process through the trauma or better manage the anxiety or the neglect or whatever happened, right? We're going to have to talk through it, process it through. Otherwise, we're going to continue to need it. And so I think along with that, like allowing yourself, you know, for a few weeks to to eat whatever you want, you're going to have to process what comes up for you when you do that. Because sure, we can do it for a little bit. We can kind of make our way through it and do it. But then we're going to get right back into that like black and white, all or nothing thinking because there's still a reason that our eating disorder exists. And so I guess my encouragement for you would be, you know, maybe journal a little bit about what those two weeks of freedom felt like and and what happened. How did we, I'd be very curious about how you, you know, slipped back into this binge restrict cycle. What happened? Was there a triggering event? What was that? Do we need other coping skills to replace this a little bit better? Was it like a stressful event? I would just be very interested in this like slipping back into it and what happened and what caused it because that's really now what we need to work on. We know that we can do the the free eating and we can let our get ourselves out of that cycle. However, we're going to have to continue to dig into why our eating disorder is there in the first place, if that makes sense. And once we kind of heal that, then we can start again with this like, you know, uh, eating whenever you, whatever you want, whenever, and, and getting back into that. But we're going to keep going back to that eating disorder if it still has a purpose to serve, if that makes sense. Okay. Final question. Question number nine says, hello and happy Thursday, Katie. Happy Thursday. says, my depression keeps going up and down. Sometimes I just feel like crying and I've been having more bad days than good. Oh, been having more bad days than good than good manageable days. I've been stuck at home for weeks, unable to go anywhere or even walk around my house properly because of an infected toe. Oh, I'm so sorry. My bad toe has been an ongoing health problem and I've hardly been anywhere at all since last year when I only went out for trips to the hospital for cancer treatments. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I haven't been able to cope and I feel like I'm slowly going crazy. I'm distant from distant from people and have been feeling very lonely and emotional and I'm also isolated from the outside world. I've been waiting for some time to get myself back into therapy, but I feel lost and like I want to give up because my depression constantly drains my mind and body every day. Honestly, the last time I was in therapy was in 2019 and I didn't feel like it helped at all. She just asked how I was every week and had me rate my depression and anxiety on a worksheet every time. That's it. I did not learn any of the tips and tricks that you talked about. What can I do to feel better? Thanks so much for your helpful videos. Okay, first of all, you're going through a lot. I just want to acknowledge that like cancer treatment and your infected toe, like that you have a lot of illness happening. Therefore, I really think you could benefit from therapy. I know you're like, I had a shitty experience. This other therapist wasn't helpful. Not all therapists are going to be a good match for us or be good at their jobs. And so I encourage you to please, please, please try again. Um, since it's hard for you to get out, you know, luckily almost everybody does online therapy now, but there's things like BetterHelp and Talkspace. It could be beneficial. And then if, and I don't know what your treatments are, obviously talk to your doctors and stuff, but you might want to see if you can get a referral in to see a psychiatrist and get on some medication for your depression. So it doesn't feel like we're, you know, uh, falling victim to its ups and downs at every whim and it just can feel very out of control. We want to get that better managed. Um, you might want to look into like a cognitive behavioral therapist, CBT, um, or even DBT if you have it. But I think CBT could be the best fit for you. Um, or just finding someone that you connect with, you feel sees you, hears you, shows up for you, and offers you some resources. And it's important even in your first appointment to say, you know, I really need some like tools and take home stuff. I don't know if you offer homework, but that's really important for me. It's okay to say that. 
Even if a therapist is like, oh, I don't always do it. They can be like, oh, they want it. So I'll make sure I do it. That's a simple thing. It's a simple ask. Um, So letting them know, because I really think that that's how we're going to get ourselves feeling better. Um, Connecting online is really great. And I think, you know, being part of our community is really wonderful. And that can be a little you know, small sliver of support, but we're going to have to get you that other support. And yes, I know you had a shitty experience, but not all therapists are created equal. I know, you know, I've had patients who came to see me and it just wasn't a good fit. And they went on to see one of my colleagues I referred them to, and it's been wonderful. And so just know that it's important for you to, to like them, to feel connected to them and to feel like they really get you and can offer you the support and resources you need. So even if you make a list of the things you're wanting out of a therapist, like write that down, read it off. These are things I need. Do you think that you could help me? You know, Um, and then getting a referral to a psychiatrist, just so you know, psychiatrists are not therapists. Um, It's very rare that you find one that spends a lot of time with you. If you do and you like them, that's awesome. But I just want to, you know, prepare you for the fact that it's a very medical model. So something I always encourage my patients to do is before you see your psychiatrist, write down your symptoms in the notes on your phone and then just read from it because we'll forget things. They're going to ask their own questions. I don't want you to get sidetracked and forget to mention things that are important, you know, Um, like, oh, I was on Prozac two years ago and it made me gain weight or I couldn't sleep or gave me sexual side effects. Like all those things are very important. And I want to make sure you get that out. So having those notes to read from can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, Yeah. And then just getting you in to see someone. I know somebody sucked, but not everybody sucks. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening and for watching. You have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for sending in your questions and I'll see you next time. Bye. I'm all done, baby. More why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.